Hello and welcome back to the University Observer News and Current Affairs podcast. I'm joined once again by uh, me, your host, Heather Reynolds. And this week I have along with me um, Stephen Kisby-Green, one of the co-editors of the College Tribune, Connor Kaplis from the Belfield Bee, and our editor-in-chief here at the University Observer, Darren DeCursey MacDonald. This week we'll be discussing uh, the recent SU elections, and I guess we'll get started by going around and giving our general um, overview on the election as it stands. Thank you, H, for having us on. I'm going to, I guess, my overall takeaway from the election this year, as it has been for the last couple of years, is just engagement. And I guess the thing I feel most strongly on this year is that five of the six sabbatical races were uncontested. And I know a lot of students don't see the SEO as something they're particularly interested in or something that does a, a huge amount for them. But to me, if you're electing people to have paid positions to represent you and to represent your interests, you should be involved and you should voice your opinion. And in my opinion, what I believe is that no matter what that opinion is, it will lead to a better SU because it will be more reflective of the 30,000 plus students. So while the, I guess, while the voter turnout is, was significantly higher this year than last, it's still not good enough. Yeah, for me, I actually kind of agree with that. Um, it seems like there's a major problem with the SU getting across to students and, and students actually getting involved in the SU but that, that's also it's not something unique to UCD as for, in my experience like uh, when I was at DCU the, it was a similar thing where only a select group of people only a portion of the, of the student body actually cared about it and felt that it, 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 it influenced their lives um, in, back in South Africa as well um, the university I went to there there was very little engagement with the the SU apart from when it, when there was protests and anything like that. Obviously, South Africa being South Africa, there's always a bit of a protest going on about something, but um, largely it's only really when the the when the student body in general feels strongly enough about an issue, for example, there was rape culture and uh, at the university at the university that I was at in South Africa, or student fees and all that sort of thing. Do they actually engage with the SU and the SU gives the demands of the protesters to the university and vice versa? They do, I mean, it's whilst it's an issue with UCD not getting the voter turnout, for me, um, the fact that there was a drastic, uh, uh, more than 100% increase in voter turnout between, uh, between last year and this year, it shows an improvement, if nothing else. And um, 15% of the total eligible population to vote is in my experience at least not hugely disproportional to every other university that I've been a part of to have an SU. So um, for me though, the, the overall result and the overall election itself was fairly uneventful apart from the whole presidential election with Liam Coyle and his um, bit of, uh, t- call it a turbulent start. Um, other than that, it all seemed to go fairly, fairly smoothly and there was, kind of nothing really major in terms of scandals or controversies really yeah um uh thanks for having me on heather um uh i i just i'd, I'd like to say i mean the the election this year it wasn't it wasn't too exciting i mean yes like Stephen mentioned uh we had that controversy with lean coil and his campaign ban which severely hindered his already in my opinion 
low shot at the presidency. Um, and so it really was between um, Rory Power, who eventually was elected, and, and Ed Leonard. Um, and as, as an incumbent already on the executive, Rory Power did have a good foothold there. But, you know, with the other five uh, positions uncontested, with just one person running, you know, it, it's hard to really get much excitement in these races. You know, um, uh, obviously every year, the same issue, engagement, it's a big thing. It's been, it's been a big thing for a long time. You know, I know people have told me that, you know, back in the 60s, it was still a huge thing. I mean, I don't think it has really gone away. It's not unique to our time. What was obviously interesting was the increase compared to last year. Now, we haven't seen, uh, that's not unique to UCD. We saw it at Trinity as well. They had an insane increase. But um, something I'd like to talk a little bit later um, is specifically where that increase lies and, and why potentially, um, uh, and it's in first years, but why why are those, why is that cohort specifically more engaged with the union than the rest of, rest of the university? Um, is it, you know, a success of um, this current sabbatical team? Or is it something that, you know, they've only experienced college online, so they're particularly engaged with union politics more than other students who have been on campus and know that, you know, no one really cares about it, you know, to an extent. So all in all, I mean, this year's election was not was not exciting at uh, the presidential race, uh, which I interviewed the three candidates for the Belfield B. That was interesting enough, but um, really, uh, overall, it, it wasn't um, uh, it wasn't something that we'd be looking back on for years to come, like the Katie Asco um, referendum and stuff like that. I suppose also the thing about uncontested races to follow up on what Connor and Stephen have said is that it leaves space for candidates who don't know enough to take up these positions. And if student journalism and campus media are documenting that students who are running for these official positions who will be directly um, coordinating with university management don't know the most basic of information of how the university is run why why should you the university management take these positions seriously especially if they just look at the overall voter turnout it makes our bartering or position very shaky i feel so i more so than just voting for the sake of using your voice and you know which is a very valid reason and to make the union better it also means that your vote and your representation means that our argument against fees or rent increases would be much more valuable. Yeah, and um, I guess on those points, it's worthy to note that um, this year there was a total election turnout of 2,245 voters, which is a drastic increase upon last year's, which was 975. There's a couple of reasons this could be, and I think a lot of it is down to do with they're used to online engagement at this stage. Um, there was issues with the voting process last year. Students weren't able to access the voting portal. I did see a few reports of that this year, but all of those were sorted within a matter of hours. So it seems to be partially overall better managed, but then overall students seem to be more adept at engaging with the union online. There is ups and downs to that. But yeah, that does seem to be a key facet of this, that students are primed to engage with the union in online space in a way that they weren't when the union was centered entirely in their offices in the student center. Yeah, I think what's, what's interesting about that, um, uh, I think definitely the online factor um, is, is very important when we're analyzing 
the turnout this year. If we look at what happened in in Trinity this year, so um, according to the University Times, um, uh, six thousand two hundred and fifty one students um, registered to vote in those elections. Um, which you know, uh, for those who don't know, I mean, Trinity is a much smaller campus, or it is a smaller campus in numbers than UCD, so they have a, a much higher engagement. But I feel like they've always really had that. Um, but the previous year, last year, it was 2,500. So um, they had a huge jump this year. And that figure of 2,500 last year was down 800 from the previous two years, according to the Times. Um, now, that that's a huge increase. Uh, and their, their electoral commission, I think uh, um, the chair of that commission believed that, you know, it was uh, first year students who were isolated were connecting with their university purely in an online way and so um, when the student union is such an important part of that it's been it's become such an important part of of their engagement with university life in general so I think that's why um, when we look at the figures for you know um, elections uh, the student elections you see this year when we have um, uh, uh, 26 percent of those who voted were stage one um, 598 um, and then stage two was 451 stage three 450 and so on so um, there was a huge cohort of first years voting and, and in, in my view and it seems like um, the same thing that happened in Trinity happened in UCD to an extent where those who were the only way they could engage with the university life was through a screen and um, they did that and you know maybe they didn't uh, chat with people outside theatre L or, or on the concourse in UCD and saying like student union oh I don't really care about that they don't really get you know that the fact that people um many students might not care perhaps because they're getting us through just like ads and stuff um, from from the union so i think in my view that aspect of it is um uh it was probably important in in an, an important factor in why there was an increase in voting this year it happened in in other year groups as well yes um so obviously um to some extent perhaps this year's this year's union did do better than last year's in terms of galvanizing that that voter, um, that, that voting block, I suppose. But um, yeah, uh, I just want to finish by saying, I mean, I, I think, I think um, the online aspect is probably um, uh, more to a uh, more of a cause in my view than, um, you know, the union doing much better this year. Yeah, I was, I kind of agree with, with kind of there a little bit and that um, I, 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 I don't necessarily think that the union did anything more or less online than what they were what they would have done in person in previous years but it was more the fact that in in last year everything sort of happened out of nowhere and covid kind of hit as the election sort of hit and it was kind of out of nowhere out of the blue this year they had time to launch an online campaign online only campaign and as Connor rightly pointed out everything's sort of been online for the past year anyways so people are used to seeing that sort of stuff and that sort of engagement everything was already set up for that and they didn't really have to pull things out of nowhere and try and um, build something out of in in a span of a couple of weeks they've had time to, to make to make these sorts of um progress or to make the progress that they needed to to get everything working this year um as you rightly pointed out and as, as uh, the college tribune reported on on wednesday l last week but the, the wednesday the wednesday of, the, of voting um there was there was an issue with the graduate uh, with, with the college officer positions um in the, the in that even though you were registered as a student you couldn't choose your college officer um and that that, that took about three hours for the SU to fix that issue and they so they subsequently extended the the deadlines but um 
the knowing how they solved last year's voting issues correlated to knowing how to solve this one and because they'd already gone through the horror show that was the voting issues of last year it allowed them to quickly solve that issue a lot quicker this year which undoubtedly had an impact on the voter engagement throughout the rest of the day that on wednesday and then subsequently on on thursday as well which resulted in not needing an extra day to to, to do to, to vote so i think that that also had an, an impact on how they on how voter engagement actually grew um, I'm certainly an advocate for online voting to continue into future elections and I do think it's of huge benefit to students who can't make it to campus or just aren't aware that things are happening or perhaps are on Erasmus and there are many reasons for students to want to vote online instead. But I do question whether this increased online engagement will continue after the pandemic. I feel perhaps part of the reason that engagement was so high and Trinity really did well tapping into it, like Connor said this year. But I wonder, was perhaps the online engagement so high because there was no alternative? And that's where students were. Now, if engagement returns to the way it was on campus, which as when um, the 2019 team were elected, as far as I'm aware, it was over 4,000 voters. That is a huge improvement in where we are this year, but it'd be great to capitalise on the online engagement coupled with the in-person engagement going forward. Yeah, I think an important thing to note is that as it stands for the past five years at least, SU voter engagement is low. Um, it's very low proportionally to the population of the university. Uh, I remember 4,000 was considered a really great turnout that year. That was something that was talked about, that it was actually a very good turnout um, and higher than expected. I think one thing that's also really important to talk about when we're talking about online engagement is with the amount of student society discords and class discords and class group chats that have popped up that students are actively engaging in and not just muting after Freshers Week has also, I think, helped greatly. Um, I know myself, I'm involved in one or two student society discords from um, just being involved in those societies. And there's a lot of cases I'm seeing of students who would not otherwise be conscious of the union talking about, I'm facing this issue, what do I do? I'm facing this issue and I don't know where it's coming from. And uh, class reps, uh, college officers being able to reach out to them and be like, hi, this is who you should talk to. This is how you should go about that. And getting them aware of how the SU functions and can help them in a way they wouldn't have otherwise which I think also helps like uplift the union in a way that wouldn't wouldn't have otherwise because those students might not have been in these spaces. They might not have had that connection because you know a third year engineering student isn't often gonna be talking to a first year English student, um, even in like society circles because people tend to clump together into their own social groups. So from here, I guess, if we're talking about engagement, we'll move on to the number of uncontested races. This is, a large amount of uncontested races in comparison to previous years. I know last year we had quite a few, but that was mainly due to drop-offs, um, some of which were due to unforeseen circumstances, some of which were due to the pandemic. But the fact that only the presidential race was contested is, might not have been a huge surprise to people actively involved in the union, but it definitely is from an observer standpoint, because usually you would have at least have welfare or CNE contested because you have people who are engaged and interested, no matter 
what the circumstances are. I think personally, my biggest issue that I noticed with the um, uncontested races was the amount of um, people going for re-election. In the so not only was there no um, no no one to challenge them for re-election, but there was nobody new coming out of the woodwork or any or interested in those positions, and that to me is more worrying than not having somebody going up against uh, Daryl for CNE. For example, um, granted, Sarah did very, very well for, uh, well, as, as well as she could in in relation to hosting Ents on, on online last year. I mean, I'm not going to say good, bad or indifferent, but surely then somebody um, would be interested in, in organizing and hosting um, entertainment stuff this year that would be interested in, in running for that position if they actually were involved or knew about that position in the SU or engaged with the SU in any sense in, in, in any sense of like that. So that, that to me is more worrying than not having um, contested races and the likes of CNE where at least it's a, granted, well, yeah, granted Darren, Daryl had um, run in the past, it wasn't for CNE. So at least um, somebody knew you ran for that position and got it. Um, so like Carla and and Sarah, they ran unopposed for re-election, showing that there was no interest from the student body to actually take over from them. And so if they didn't run, then who would, basically, which is slightly more worrying for me. Yeah, I, I, I've got to agree with Stephen there. I mean, um, it is it does seem to be a symptom of disengagement. Um, I think that's fairly clear. You know, maybe to to take the side of of um, the people behind those positions. You know, for uh, Rory, who ran not for welfare again, but obviously for president, but he wanted to go again. He got it. And then same with Carla and Sarah. Um, you know, the jobs market at the moment is not still not very good. You know, um, we're still in a pandemic. You know, um, when they when their term ends in in uh, the middle of June after the handover process, you know, the jobs market's not going to be severely improved by then. I absolutely understand why they want to have a job for another year, you know, um, but equally, um, uh, now maybe some of you guys, maybe during, you might be closer to the union, um, you might know, uh, part of the role of, um, of a sabbatical officer is to make sure that you have a successor. Um, if, if an individual, you know, wanted to, I guess, um, just go for it again, is there an incentive for for them to find a successor if they wanted to you know um, i know graduate is historically in, in the past few years anyway it's a i don't want to say a poison chalice but there's not a lot of interest in engaging with with them apart from casework um, or going for the position i mean um, carla only went for the position after um no one ran for it initially you know um, and then three people went for it uh so i think that shows that you know there's not really a lot of engagement there what do you think Dern? um i don't want to report that Sarah and Carla deliberately didn't encourage people to run for those positions. Though I do see, I, I, I can accept where your, where your point is coming from. And I say, um, I, I don't want to infer that, uh, you know, um, that Carla or Sarah um, deliberately didn't get people to replace them because they wanted, um, you know, the position for themselves. I don't want to infer that, but I'm just asking the question. I'm not sure. Um, I, is there an unwritten rule within the union to um, uh, to make sure that as a successor? And is there an incentive to do that? If you want to run again, um, you know, does that person need to find a successor or can they just 
run again themselves. Um, do, do you, do you um, know? Or is that I will jump in there and say it's far more likely that we have a situation similar to that of Lyle Taurus a few years ago where no one ran. And so they made the decision to throw their own hat in the ring to ensure there'd be someone in the position. I think that is a much more likely thing to have happened than for them to like not be incentivizing people to run, particularly Sarah in ENTS, because that's just so the antithesis of a good ENTS officer, um, because that's part of the job is endorsing that everyone go for everything. And like Sarah, as it stands, I would say has been a pretty good ENTS officer, all things considered. She has been trying her best to reach out like through Twitter and through the channels, like all of those competitions that have been run this year, that's been Sarah. Other sabbatical officers have also done it and other college officers, but it's it's been a lot of Sarah's work doing that. But yeah, I'd say it's far more likely to be a situation of that, of Lyle Taurus a few years back of someone needs to run for this. And graduate only wasn't filled last year because Connor was running for president and so couldn't recontest graduate. And he tried very, very hard to get someone to run in that position before, like in the original election. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally can empathize with Sarah. Um, you know, she's had a very tough year in her position, um, you know, and doing it all online, you know, like maybe 10, 15 years ago, you, you wouldn't even think that was possible. Um, uh, and so it was a very unique year for her to do it. And I can totally understand why she want to go at it again if, um, you know, according to Harris, we're going to have more more in-person stuff um, when things come back uh, in the next academic year. So, yeah, like, you know, she got the role in a bad year. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I wish her the best. I, I, I hope she gets a good year at it because I can imagine it was a, it was a difficult task. So uh, to follow up on what Connor had said and has been said by others, uh, I agree, Sarah has worked hard to engage with students and it has been a difficult task and engaging through a phone is, doesn't seem like the most pleasant way to do ends. And I can completely understand that she would want to fulfill her ambitions and her wishes for the year um, in person, which I'm sure everyone here can relate to having great hopes for a year of doing something on campus and it just not working out as planned and everything being done through a screen. However, it is not acceptable to run uncontested and when questioned for none of your manifesto points to, to actually hold any water, um, excuse me, which I think is reflected in all the interviews and was reflected in the hustings that I understand the pandemic is, it's so difficult to plan for and ENS is the worst position with regards to pandemic. However, in my eyes, you cannot run for a position and say, we'll see when people ask you to explain your plans come up with some example or some idea, but that was the one thing I was very disappointed about. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing what ENTS will do and I have no doubt it will be a good year and Sarah will put everything into it, but I don't think that's good enough for students and for voters. Maybe Darren, I mean, I haven't seen that interview, maybe for context for myself and maybe the audience who aren't aware, um, what, did, what did Sarah say or what's the context behind that comment? Sure, of course. So Sarah put forward her manifesto, which was really graphic and cool to look at and had interesting ideas in it. However, when questioned, which can be seen in the University Observer write-ups and in our print edition in the College Tribune and in the hustings, when questioned about in a little bit in further and more in depth about plans for kind of reintroducing first years and second years to campus, there were no concrete ideas you could point to and no specifics and it became a little bit frustrating and repetitive 
that there are no specifics involved. I suppose I'm, I'm not saying that Sarah hasn't thought this through and hasn't considered this, and I understand plans will change, but when you're running for a position, I think, feel like your voters deserve to hear specifics on what you actually have planned and saying something big or something cool isn't good enough in my book. Yeah, I suppose also it falls into a trend of criticism that the ENS officers face of it's kind of a habitual thing to just say I have something really big and cool planned. Um, it was the same for her predecessor who did that his entire first year. And it's something that can't be avoided because with ENS there's so much planning that has to go into things before you can say for certain this is a thing that I have planned that can go ahead. But as well, you should have a certain degree of specifics for things you would aspire to do at manifesto stage um, that are at very least costed and checked, particularly when you're going in for re-election rather than an original election. Yeah, I mean, I kind of got the impression reading uh, her manifesto and um, in the interviews and hustings that basically not, I mean, we're effectively using her as a, as a, an, ex- an example of a scapegoat for the, every position at this point because it's all been, and because ENS is so reliant on um, being in person, every every candidate has been guilty of this throughout this pandemic. But ENS in particular, um, sort of, Sarah kind of relied on everything that she promised pre- last year that was she wasn't able to do, and now basically resubmitted all the, all those promises uh, in the hopes that there is going to be on campus um, learning the, the, in the next year. Actually, the Tribune uh, published about half an hour ago an article which kind of goes along the line stating that um, the, the current student behavior is making on-campus um, activity uh, less and less likely, or at least a, a later start to on-campus activity is is being uh, reported um, at the moment, based purely on the uh, some some of the students' behavior at the moment. But then again, students are also being used as a scapegoat because it's not just students; it's everyone. The, the the pandemic has only gotten this long has only gone on this long because a lot of people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's not just students, even though a lot of a lot of the time um, students are used as scapegoats. But then we're using um, Sarah as a as a scapegoat right now for the same sort of thing. I think the the major issue is that because no one knows exactly what's going on and how exactly how much time we're going to be having on campus next year, there's only a certain amount of promises that and planning that can be done. So. I, I see Darren's point there on um, Sarah. Everything was we'll see, and honestly, in every interview that I've seen, in, um, in every Hustings, uh, well, in, in the Hustings, in every article we've 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 all written and read, it was more we'll see, we'll see. Can't really say anything. We'll have to see. And for me, the need and by some things for everyone else here, there needed to be an actual firm plan in place for. Plan A is on campus, plan B is off campus. We need to know what's gonna happen in both scenarios. And it seemed like Sarah only really planned for plan A and had nothing to, for plan B. And that's the biggest issue that I, I, that I think we have with, um, with, ENS, with ENS this year. Obviously I hope, we hope to be proven wrong and we hope that everything's gonna be on campus, but I'm also a bit pessimistic just by nature. And I don't see us being on campus or see students being on campus for a while yet, especially with, with what's current, currently going on. So um, it, would be, it, would be, it would have been nice to see more than just a we'll see approach from, from some of the candidates. I, I, I do wanna play devil's advocate for a moment. I mean, um, 
I suppose, I think what you're proposing there uh, of like a plan A, plan B in terms of, um, you know, ends online, ends on campus, two manifestos, that would have been really cool to see. Um, I think that would have been great. But I can also, I mean, I, I haven't read or, or watched in detail those interviews with Sarah. I, what, what I would say is that, you know, we are still kind of in this in, in, a, in a place where we, we still don't know for sure what it's going to look like um, uh, trimester one of uh, the next academic year. So we, we still we still don't know. And, you know, uh, perhaps she wouldn't want to fall into the trap of um, promising everything and then not being able to do it. But look, I'm just playing, trying to play devil's advocate here because I feel like we are going very hard on Sarah and she's not here to defend herself, you know? I appreciate you playing devil's advocate. And again, this is like Stephen said, and I'm totally reiterating that this is not a Sarah problem and we're not, we're taking the ENTS campaign perhaps as our example. However, anyone can look at that there's two or maybe three kind of a kind of a hybrid between online and, and on campus modes coming ahead and if you're running for an office it's not good enough to say we'll see in my opinion and I appreciate and again this isn't targeting a specific candidate or Sabat but no one knows what's coming down the line and that's very evident and it's true of every policy across the world at the moment but I think you need to at least give some stab at what you would like to do if you're running for an official position. To add to that as well, um, you, Connor, you mentioned that um, didn't want to fall into the trap of promising all the world, and yet that's exactly what some of the candidates have done. They've promised the world uh, for Plan A, which is on get back to on campus with nothing as as a backup, and that that that's exactly my what what I'm getting at here is that because we don't know, because nobody knows. There needs to be some some contingency, so that to, to prove that um, oh we can't get back on campus, so I'm not going to do anything. I'm not saying that that's what any of the candidates are going to do, especially not especially not Sarah. I'm not again. I, this is not an attack on Sarah at all. It's really using using an example, but uh, by not pr- providing any sort of promise or any sort of plan for what will happen in a, in, a, in a hybrid system or what can happen in a in a online only system again there seemed to be a lot of room for well we tried government didn't play ball so i'm just going to sit here again and I'm, again again i'm not saying that that's what sarah did at all i'm not saying that's what any of the candidates did this past year but by not having that contingency there is definite room for i didn't for, the, for them at the end of the campaign to say oh at the, at the end of the term rather to say well i didn't promise anything to happen during covid online only so you can't be mad at me for not delivering anything and that's the same for uh, cne it's the same for president it's the same for all of the education it's the same for all of the uh, roles it's it's not it, the, the vast majority of them did not have a plan for a b and c and that to me is another big issue with and another reason why i think that a lot of the students don't necessarily engage with the su that much is because they only really it seems like the campaigns are only focused on one thing when they could they could and should be focusing on a lot more and i'm not saying they have to live up to everything but if there's more if there's a buffet of things to vote on you're going to have every student's going to have their fill, whereas a lot of students might not necessarily care about going to coppers. I mean, personally, I've never been to coppers because I'm still fresh off the boat, but um, a lot of people might not care about going to coppers, but they'll care about being able to meet up with their friends for a tea party. 
for example. So having having those options for both people takes the same amount of planning, but just equal. You just need more thought. That's that that that's my sort of weird and wonderful example. Suppose that I think is a fair enough amount of time to spend on the ends race, and I will reiterate my previous point that. Like, it is not just a Sarah issue, it is an ENTS issue as well. This is a trend that's been seen in ENTS campaigns for as long as I've been in UCD and I've been in UCD forever. So I guess we'll use that as a segue to look at the races overall in a bit more detail, um, because we're actually spending a lot of time there on ENTS. suppose from there we'll move into the one contested race that we have, the presidential race. Uh, looking at the voter breakdown for presidential race, uh, Rory Power, the successful, successful candidate uh, moving from welfare to president received just over 70% of the overall vote, followed by uh, Ed Leonard receiving 17% and Coyle uh, with nine. It's worth noting that all of these candidates are coming from within the SU. We don't have anyone coming from societies this year or coming from sports. They're all SU candidates as well as power being a previously sitting sabbatical officer. Um, things that will probably come up overall in this is Coyle's um, campaign ban, and as well as the fact that power has a bit more notoriety than the rest of the candidates uh, in being a previously sitting sabbatical officer. I think with the uh, with the presidential race, um, it was exciting because there were three candidates. So relative to the other can- other races, it was it was um, it was a good thing to sort of follow. Um, but if every other ca- every other race had three candidates, um, I think you know probably the presidential race would have been the easiest call. In my opinion, Rory Power always had that race. Um, I, in my view, I, I couldn't see Liam Coyle certainly getting the presidency, and Ed Leonard, although popular, I believe within law circles, I couldn't see him him um, reaching the same level of popularity as Rory Power, unless something happened in Rory's campaign and, you know, and it damaged it. But yeah, Liam, Liam Coyle's um, campaign, obviously, uh, he received a, a two-week campaign ban for advertising his his candidacy and asking for people to nominate him. And I didn't see him ever coming back from that. Ed Leonard is, a, is an all right candidate. He really is. But Rory Power really knows his stuff. Um, he's an incumbent. Um, he's well-liked. He is the textbook politician, you know, soft Dems. Um, in my view, uh, it, it was always going to be Rory. Um, just to give a brief moment of context on the Bigham Coyle uh, campaign ban, that happened not because he was advertising his campaign, um, but because he was advertising it originally. It was thought he was advertising it through just through his um, SU email, which gives him a contact that he has over the other candidates. It's considered foul play. Um, who's originally reprimanded. The reason why he was barred from campaigning for two weeks is because it was discovered that he was using a mailing list that he should not have had access to and um, using it for a purpose that was not was not there when the people signing up for that mailing list signed up, which is why it was such a harsh a uh, campaign barring as well as the overall campaign bar. I'm going to argue with your use of the word harsh, I'm afraid. I um, feel like the campaign bar was only effective this year because it was an online vote. Therefore, students who were voting actively had to register and actively had to vote. A significant number, as far as I'm aware, of students, not, not, not a majority, but nevertheless, significant number of students who vote every year are students who see the table and get the opportunity to tick a box and, you know, you just show your student card and then you can vote. And if that were the case this year, a huge proportion of students would know Liam Coyle's name and perhaps they wouldn't know 
Edward Leonard's name or Rory Powers as well. And if you look at the numbers in the, in the first round, Liam Coyle received 191 votes and Ed Leonard only received 372 votes. And this is including Liam Coyle's two-week ban. I question whether did it go, hard, did it go far enough as, a, as an appropriate punishment for the data breach and the breach of campaign rules, which it, in my opinion, it was, it was pretty blatant. Um, as once the name recognition is out there, for something as for something like an SU election, that counts for a lot. Just to say, on my use of the word harsh, I meant more so that this is the harshest reprimand that the SU returning officer ever usually gives. A two-week campaign bar is kind of the furthest they will ever go before completely striking someone's campaign, which I have not seen in my time at UCD. I have not heard heard tell of in my time at UCD. Sorry for calling it you out on your own podcast, H, and you're right, it isn't particularly harsh, and you're completely right to um, point out that it is just the furthest the SU has gone, and in my opinion, not particularly far. I think, ironically, it, it actually had the effect of advertising Coyle himself, as, as Darren kind of alluded to there. It's, it's similar to, I, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not gonna, I'm not comparing him to Trump, but it's similar to this, uh, the, the, all the negative press that Trump often often got during his presidency or during his his lead up to to his presidency where a lot of the like the, the more often you see their name in, in in a headline the more often you associate them with the race so subconsciously if you're on the fence or subconsciously if you have never heard of the candidate before the more you see it the more you'll associate it with the race and that 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 to me is exactly what happened with coil and as darren pointed out um he got a decent amount of votes uh, granted it was, in the end it didn't sort of mean amount to much but um he got a decent he got, he got a lot more votes than than original polls would, would have suggested and um I mean, the College Tribune ran a a poll uh, with a, obviously with a very select group of people. I mean, we didn't select them, but they select they self selected themselves. So it wasn't necessarily representative of the entire um, student population. But as these polls never are, but for our poll, ten percent were voting Ron, and four percent were voting Coyle. Now, obviously, th- those numbers kind of switched in the actual final tally, but that in of itself kind of proves the point of the the fact that there is no such thing as negative press in a in a race like this where you don't know all the candidates you only know the one if even by breaking the rules one of the other two that are relative unknowns and for the rest of the um campus that don't actually engage with the with the su um they're both they're they're effectively equal in terms of their in terms of their notoriety or or infamy or, or or not so um giving one negative press actually gives them more press than the other one be purely because they did something whereas the other one has f- followed the rules and doesn't ha- have has done nothing apart from running to warrant more press if that makes sense i would definitely say if it was any other year and we were having in-person elections we would not be seeing the voting disparity between Coil, um, Leonard, and Power that we are. Um, I've been on the ground for literally every election since 2017 in in UCD, both as a like running with candidates um, as part of a campaign team, and from a journalistic perspective. And typically, what happened to Coil would not have affected his chances because it would be on campus. It would be in person. His posters would still be up. 
and people would be talking about it in society events, at classes, in um, course group chats. I think the reason why it affected his vote as much as it did this year is because this year more than any other year, and last year was the same, it's an SU hack election. You're not getting those people coming up to the table randomly because they have five minutes before their next class. They got in earlier than they expected. They saw the table when they were getting their coffee the way it has in previous years where you do just get random people coming up and voting. Um, not uncommon when you're in the queue to vote here, people say like, who's actually running? Who are you voting for? I'm just gonna vote for the women. I'm voting alphabetically. Like you hear those kind of things when you're actually in the queue and it kind of breaks the SU hack immersion, I think as well. But this year it ha this year and last year it has very much been a people who are interested and invested run. And Coyle's chances were hurt a lot by this in an SU perspective. SU people were not happy that he did this. And it was spoken about in council and spoken about at length. And people from other races were weighing in and saying it wasn't fair um, for him to have done that. I think as well, like, it's also it might be why um, Leonard got a few more votes than Coyle did. So like the fact that Power has the most name brand recognition um, Leonard's been involved in student, um, student debating for a good few years now and is very popular in those circles. And so he has that little foothold there that is also very SU engaged. Student societies typically are, particularly debating societies, which would also account for his bump in the votes um, because if it was just people who were voting on the off chance, they'd know Power's name and face best. But yeah, Leonard had the boost of being actively involved in LawSoc and Coyle unfortunately did not have the online campaigns that the other two did. His social medias, I couldn't even find them when I went looking, whereas I was getting like suggested accounts for Ed Leonard and Lori Power because friends of friends were following them. But yeah, like this, the campaigns these past two years have been very insular to the union and Coyle really hurt his chances by alienating himself from the union at council. I suppose you could also make the argument that um, uh, because things were online this year, um, and last year, um, but with the online election specifically, that the media um, is more important um, in the absence of lecture addressing, stopping people in the line before you vote, you know, having posters up. Um, the student union's uh, social media accounts the candidates accounts and the and uh the the campus uh the campus newspapers you know these are the the most important sources and um i suppose if uh if you have a blackout and that for two weeks in the case of lean coil you're not going to get very far especially if now maybe durant or steven you found one but i can't find any or didn't find any um like heather mentioned their campaigning pages for lean coil which is interesting um but uh yeah i i think definitely uh, in previous elections, you would see a a, a wider wider circle of voting, like like Heather rightly pointed out. But this year, you know, I, I feel like with everything being specifically online, you have those three sources are the primary use of information, and then just you know people chatting in group chats and stuff. You know, um, yeah. Since you mentioned group chats, I think as well it is also fair to mention that the same influence I mentioned earlier with class group chats and society discords would happen as well. With um, I know in several that I'm in. People were throwing in a message saying, who are people voting for? I don't know who any of those people are. And people were sending in names and reasons 
particularly I know with arts humanities and social science that was when people had not made up their minds on usually until they were on that page I know I hadn't and I am involved in the newspaper which I think is another race uh, when we're doing a presidency that would be an interesting to take a brief closer look on um it's not as important or influential obviously but there is some points of discussion I would agree I feel like as as it was the only other contested race within um, the whole election that it is worth commenting on. Um, I find it interesting that Miranda came out um, with the highest number of votes, was elected in stage one, I should say, and one of her main points was to split up the position. Um, so I, I feel that was the main issue that students were voting for, because it was the only issue in my eyes that really separated the students. And in particular, Shane Lynch, who was not elected, had a very strong um, social media campaign perhaps strong might not be the right word but a very loud social media campaign and was very engaged and very made a significant effort to engage and re-engage with students so I feel that this campaign is perhaps but you know what I can't actually comment on the rest of the campaigns but it is the campaign that I feel like students focused on issues as opposed to name recognition which is a good thing. I would argue potentially not because I have heard an awful lot more people against splitting the colleges than I've heard for it. Specifically social science students um, and sociology students who don't know which they'd end up in. Um, there are sociology and social science courses that are run through the School of Social Science and there are ones that are run through the School of Humanities. And I know a lot of people are like, I don't know who my class rep would be. I don't know who my college officer would be. Splitting these doesn't work for me as someone who would be directly impacted by this. I do not want to say that this is the case with Miranda because I, I don't know the people who voted for her. What I know is every year when I'm in the line to vote in arts humanities and social sciences in Onkuis, I hear at least three people saying, I'm voting women first. That is a voting practice that is very much there in the arts department um, when people don't know who's running. I know it's something that helped out ASCO when she was running in arts. Um, I heard a lot of people saying like, oh yeah, no, I voted for um, ASCO and Hart first. And people being like, you voted ASCO? And be like, yeah, like I'm voting for women. And then they find out her policies and be like, oh, oh, I made a mistake. People who don't know the race, there is a practice within art specifically voting women first. I don't want to say that that helped her necessarily. I will say it shouldn't be discounted, um, particularly with the amount of people from the specific group she's talking about that will be affected by splitting the schools, saying that they don't think it's feasible, they don't think it'll work, that like, yeah, it could, it could be an issues thing, or it could be the fact that she looks very friendly, because people don't usually look into college officer races as much as they do sabbatical races. It's because they're not as present, they're not as loud, they change based on where, like, what you yourself study. So there's less talking about it with your friends from other principals, um, other, other aspects of the university. I was, I'd be hesitant to say that it was due to specific issues she espoused and maybe more so just a people thought she looked nice and or the kind of school of arts principal voting women first. I'd have to agree with with H there. Um, 
uh, I think if you want to separate their policies, you could probably take um, Miranda's um, uh, biggest policy that differentiated um, her from, is it Ronan and Shane as being that sort of split. Um, but to be honest, like, I don't, I don't really think people aren't that engaged with sabbatical offers, never mind their like college officer election. I mean, does anyone really care? Um, you know, I, I feel like if you watch the, the hostings there um, that the student union hosted um, and you just watch those three videos, to me, Miranda uh, spoke best, followed by Ronan, followed by Shane. Um, and people seem to vote on, on those lines. Um, so I'm sure issues had a part to play in it. But um, if you showed, you know, those people, uh, that sort of clip um, of, of those people talking, you know, um, it just seemed like Miranda knew what she was doing um, the most. And then, you know, the votes kind of followed through, through that, I suppose. I have to say, I'd be very disappointed this year if students weren't voting on issues, considering out of the whole of AHSS, or sorry, arts, humanity and social sciences, that it was only 576 students voted in total and that 305 of them voted for Miranda, not based on her policies. And I would be surprised because again, like we discussed for the presidential race, that people who are voting this year are people who are engaged and are SU, they are SU people. So I do think your points are valid and I'm not a student of arts, humanities and social science. So I can't agree or disagree with your points you're making. Uh, it, it would be nice to hope that people were voting on issues based all the time, but I can understand that that's not the case. Um, but I, yeah, it is, it is interesting this year, and I would hope that the 305 people who voted for Miranda voted for her for her policies. I mean, that's the hope every year. That is the hope every year. Um, but yeah, no, I will say again, like the people who voted, yeah, only 305 people voted um, for her. And you would hope that they would all be based on policy, but you have to count into that friends, you have to count into that people she was a class rep for, you have to count into that people who are maybe well-educated on the sabbatical races and eager to cast their vote into those. But then when they got to the college officer page, realized, I don't know any of these people, I didn't look into this race. People forget about college officers, people don't think it's important. And yeah, you both fall into that principle of like, oh, this one, this one, this one, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I'm going to text a group chat and ask. Yeah, so you'd hope, but honestly, with college officers, I would be hesitant to think that people were voting on issues there because they rarely do. I have to say, going back to, flipping back to the presidential race, back to where we started, that I think Rory Power's election is testament to the amount of work he's put in and I'm not a student, so I didn't vote. And I've covered this, uh, I've covered his work as part of the University Observer team all this year. And I do think his landslide win, if we can call it that, is a reflection of his work as a welfare officer, which I think it is worth noting that in such a difficult year, it really has been second to none. And he's taken on a huge amount of casework and a huge amount of campaigning and has been very successful I feel for an online year which is worth note. One thing I would personally commend Rory Power on uh, is something I wrote an article on earlier in the year because I was so shocked to see it happen was his continuation of providing free sanitary products through the SU. As a male welfare officer and I'm hesitant to talk about gender breakdowns with welfare in particular because that opens a huge can of worms for me that maybe we'll get into at a later stage with gender breakdowns in the union. The fact that he is a male welfare officer 
either thought of it himself or listened to a woman when it was brought to him to make sure that that was still being provided for and to do it in a way that would be at no greater cost to the students who needed it really stood out to me for like as a clear sign that he thinks of people who are not in his own demographic um, and that's something that was so important in welfare and something that would be so important in presidents that he like put in the time and effort to make sure that things like that that seem like such a minor part of the union continue to go forward because they do help people. I agree with um, Heather there and I would also like to note uh, just as a follow-up that Carla Gummerson, re-elected grad officer, mentioned in her interview with the University Observer that one of her proudest achievements this year was the continuation of that scheme that she also contributed to that and that she contributed to the provision of sanitary products in bathrooms throughout campus which I also feel that she is deserving of praise for. Well I guess um, we've been running for a pretty long amount of time at this stage so I guess we'll move on to the final point of conversation I sent out to you guys which is looking at the election in comparison to previous years. I've already mentioned gender breakdowns, um, welfare is back with a woman, usually is. Welfare is the only race year on year you will see in UCD where if a man and a woman runs, it will go to the woman without fail. Um, there are gendered connotations with the role historically. Um, I did a big piece on this retroactively back in 2018, where I went back on the past, I think, 20-ish years of election results and did a gender breakdown of the sabbatical officers, sitting sabbatical officers. Um, it runs in about one in four sitting sabbatical officers are women. Um, and welfare is the only race where it, ten, where it leans female. So it's really interesting to see this year that it's actually a female dominant sabbatical team that in graduate and uh, welfare and education, it's all women, um, with just Daryl and Rory on the team as men. Um, I think that might be one of the first times that's ever happened. I think it is the first time that's ever happened, thinking back on my, my research a few years back. I think, um, I think it was the, um, when Joanna was elected president, was that not a female-led, and then, um, uh, female, then, female dominated. I, I should have said female yeah, dominated. Sorry, sorry. Fe I mean female dominated. But then wasn't Thomas Monaghan then elected ENTS officer, which meant it wasn't anymore. Um, yes, it was a splitting of the role that led to that. Um, so yeah, for for about two weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So this is it's very distinctive. There's um that is something that stands out when you look at the team um and also the continuation of it being a woman in ENTS is very interesting and it's a role that leans very male it was I think before um before Sarah there was two I believe if, my, if I'm calling correctly there was two women who sat that in that role previously to Sarah so it is nice to see a bit of diversity in it um but also that like it's interesting to know that this is the year it happens. Whilst I agree, it's very, it's definitely very positive that it's a, a female um, dominate, dominated group. My concern is that there were so few contested races. It, it wouldn't, be, it's not as positive when you actually interrogate it. Um, if, 
if say for example there was um non-binary male female running for each position and it was still female led then 100% or female dominated then 100% definitely very positive definitely very interesting um my concern is because there is there was so many uncontested races and barring um Daryl all the all, the only um female positions that were won were won in uncontested races yeah so Daryl's the only other one that was uncontested that where he won um I would be more encouraged by the results if a if a, if a man or not somebody that's non-binary ran for ents or ran for graduates like I'm, I'm not taking i'm not taking away the, the movement because it's definitely it, it is definitely interesting and it's definitely something to be proud of that the, the sabbatical team is dominated by women but maybe next year hopefully there's more people running hopefully then there'll still be more women in in, in those positions then that would i would be a little bit more encouraged by the by seeing that personally no, I 100% agree with you. Um, the data backs up that when a lot of these roles are contested, it will lean towards a man. Um, there are also specific colleges where if you look back on data, there are certain colleges who are just less likely to vote for women. Um, and that gets backed up year on year. Um, we had a breakdown of that in the election special in 2019. Um, that you know, kind of outlined which colleges were most and least likely to vote for a woman. There are other classes to take into account with that, where some of them are just colleges that they vote very insularly. But yeah, it. I will. I will not rejoice for gender equality in the union until I see a woman beat a man for ants. It's you should be voting on issues. You should be voting on um, on who is actually best suited to the role. But yeah, um, I think it's just interesting to note. It'd be interesting to look at as the year goes on if this will affect anything. But um, I don't think it's a big win for feminism. Uh, I just think it's something that's really interesting to note statistically. I have to agree with everything that's been said that you can't take this year as a huge win for feminism. But I think I'm quoting the GAA or an ad or something. If she, if she can't see it, she can't be it. And gender quotas, often people argue that they're not actually helpful in that you're putting women in these positions and they're getting their, they're getting this leg up so they're not as deserving. But the thing about it is, is that they're necessary to bring women along and bring women in. So perhaps we can consider this year, even though all these races are uncontested, that they are the leg up that is needed. Though I have to acknowledge that plenty of races are always contested by women and they are usually taken by men. But hopefully this is the year that can give that boost and more women um, can feel as though they can run for these positions. Um, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I'm actually hoping that this year proves undoubtedly that um, the women are better for these for, for these positions. Um, or if, if, if not, if not better then at least equal, uh, equal to, which is seems to be the, the, the voting seems to be always in favor of the men as, we, as we've previously pointed out. Uh, just also you're quoting 20 by 20 uh, movement, <laughs> uh, largely by sport, um, which is my, 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 my favorite aspect of, of, of human life. Um, no, look, I'm, I, I am encouraged to see that um, it, it is a female uh, dominated sabbatical team purely because I'm looking forward to seeing how well they do as a team. And I'm hoping that, it, that, that, it, that they do do well, because 
if they can prove that they've done they've done well and they've done lived up to the vast majority of their promises, then th- hopefully that will change the minds in a lot of the um, colleges that, as you as you point, pointed out, um, often vote in favor of the men um, when when there's a male female race. Um, it's as, as Jaren pointed out. It's it's not a win for feminism, but it provides an opportunity for feminism to win. Um, yeah, one thing I will say, just with Jaren bringing up the "if you can't if you can't see it, you can't be a quote." Um, another thing that I looked into when I was writing my original piece in 2018 was gender breakdowns and sabbatical roles in the union statistically correlate with gender breakdowns in the doll. For a lot of people, student politics is their first step into the world of real life politics. What I argue student politics are real life politics for a lot of people. Um, they do deal with real life issues. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of people's first step in the door um, working with youth, uh, youth wings of parties, working in unions, working in political spaces. This is usually their first time. And if people contest races at that level in the supposedly very left-leaning spaces and a qualified candidate loses to, yes, usually another qualified candidate, but when you then look at the statistics and you see like, oh, well, this college has never voted majority woman, um, it can be very disenchanting. Um, and it's one of the things that leads to women working an awful lot more behind the scenes in campaigns, working an awful lot more in the offices on the ground, more so than being the face of it. Um, it leads to parties running more men because they know, well, in this constituency, men don't really like to get votes. It's, again, they're not contested races, so it's not really challenging anything in there, but it's hopeful that in the future, people might be likely to look on it kindly. Again, I would like to see change specifically in ENTS. I would love that, um, but that's that's more to do with perceptions and portrayals of the role of ENTS more so than anything else um, and how that interacts with gender biases. I think we've touched on quite a few of the races at this stage um, in, in one way or another, but one race we haven't touched on and I'd like to bring up as a point of conversation is the race of welfare. Um, it's something that has been looked into by um, ourselves, the University Observer, at the beginning of the year, and has been looked into by all campus media over the years, but I feel like it, the role is really at the point of breaking. And I feel like Molly Greeno is a very capable candidate, having, as she says herself, experienced the SU from both someone who needed help and someone who was there to help others. And I'm confident she will do her best for the role. However, and like I said before, Rory did a fantastic job this year in the role of welfare officer. Um, but I'm very, I'm very aware that I feel like the role needs reform at this stage. The casework that students are expected to deal with and the issues students are expected to deal with as uncontested sabbatical officers who have just finished a degree and perhaps nothing related to it and only have their own life experience to work up and perhaps a few training days, to me does not seem sufficient with the level of um, trauma and hurt and distress that they have to deal with day in and out on top of all the committees they sit on, which is no mean feat. And I'd like to, I'm just bringing it up as a point of conversation with my fellow panelists. Yeah, I would say very much there's no one who has sat in the role of welfare who will say it's an easy job. 
I know a lot of uh, Melissa Plunkett, who was welfare officer in the academic year 2018, 2019. She, a lot of the work she did in that role was to try and make it a safer role for, for welfare officers to come. Um, she'd been working in healthcare since she was about 15 years old and she was 30 at the time of running. So she is hands down the most qualified welfare officer I think you've ever had. Um, and be, it was because of that experience and because of that, um, like that hands-on knowledge that she had that it was a huge priority of hers to make sure that sabbatical officers were safeguarded against in future years for sabbatical officers that they get appropriate training that they get the bare minimum training i know there's been talk in recent years about how some of that training has been rolled back since and it's only 2018 she left that some of the training has been uh, rolled back and i know like yeah it's something that the welfare role does need reform definitely and it needs to be students enter into this position knowing what they're signing up for no one goes into welfare without having spoken to a welfare officer and no welfare officer can look a student in the face and say it's an easy job. But at the same time, while they know what they're getting in for, there is an awful lot more there than there really should be. There should be, there should be someone who is a trained professional in mental health doing a lot of the work the welfare officer does um, in terms of like first response and making contact with students at risk. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree completely that um, the role definitely needs reform and there needs to be a lot more support given to the role from not only, I mean, I don't think the SU can provide any more support than it, than it currently is. So the university itself, and I know it's difficult trying to get the university to do anything that, that, should, that they should be doing, but the university itself should be providing some level of professional support to the welfare officer for, for exactly those reasons. Again, though, the the mandatory bystander intervention and um, th those lectures that um, a lot of the candidates have brought up and a lot of um, that Rory was a very strong advocate for in, uh, during his his time and um, uh, the current has also been very vocal on, they will not only support the welfare officer because th there'll be more um, people to to some level equipped to deal with similar situations but it would also provide people with the confidence potentially to go seek out the, the professionals that are capable of dealing with this more so than the, than the welfare officer uh, as far as as far as i understand it so basically yeah, i com completely agree i'm also an, an advocate for the for the welfare officer being split into more than just one role uh, so maybe certain certain aspects of the role be, be split into a into a completely new position. Unfortunately, I'm not the, I'm not qualified to tell you exactly which uh, aspects of that role that, that aspects of the role that should be divvied up to which and to what you would call the new position. But I definitely think there's a lot on the plate of the welfare officer at the moment that there needs to be some level of splitting up, even even if it just means assistant or deputy welfare officers or a team that reports to the actual officer that can be broken up more that's that to me would be a vital help to every welfare officer from from now into the future um i will say that a lot of the sabbatical officers do have teams of students who work with them um in support of them in their roles um, in ways that are appropriate i know several people who've done that for welfare 
uh, sorry, I, I would just argue that um, whilst I know that there has been teams in the past that have supported welfare officers, I would like these to be formalized positions rather than just as and when appropriate. Um, and then the, those people in those teams also be paid to some level like the sabbatical officer is, as in they might not become a full sabbat a sabbatical role, but at least a part-time sabbatical role to to help support them as well and because otherwise it it if each if each if each welfare officer decides um i'll have three uh people supporting me in my team and they actually need five but they've only got three people that have agreed to them it, it might actually just hinder them a bit more so that's why well, I, would, I would i would call for at least some level of, of formalization of this i'm not sure if the the, the um, the students union would have the budget for for something like that. Um, and you you did mention earlier that uh, that maybe the it's it might be somewhat the obligation of the university to provide welfare officers with adequate training. I I'm not sure if I would agree with that. I'm not sure if it is the university's obligation. I mean the 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 union right now. Um, and it is the opinion of the current president and most likely the next president that they need to be a um, antagonistic body to the university need to hold them to account. The university does give a huge um, uh, grant to the union every year. I think it's about a hundred thousand. Um, surely there's an argument there that like the, the welfare officer can take training out of that, that um, the, the university is providing them with these funds. Um, I'm just not sure if it, it is, we can blame the university for, um, for the welfare officers not being adequately trained. I would echo a lot of what Connor's saying and specifically say that the university employing someone within the union who is there to port a role that deals with crisis intervention would be a huge disincentive to actually calling on the university for systemic change. If that's a support that can be pulled at any time based on university decision, that is a huge reason for them to not challenge things the university is doing. So I would very much say like, if you're paying people to be in support of the welfare officer, I don't think a team is the right way to go about it. I would say it would be university employing full-time crisis support counselor, crisis intervention counselor, because that is the most emotionally draining part of the welfare officer role is dealing with students in crisis. So if there is to be any any scope made for having a, an additional paid position, I do think what would alleviate a lot of the stress and emotional turmoil for the welfare officer would be to employ a trained crisis intervention counselor. I, but um, I, um, I think the point and that would have to be on here, the union end. I think I think the point here, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. It, it does have to be on the union end. Um, you know, the the university won't employ more full time counselors. They they continue to outsource counseling because it's cost effective to outsourced to other places rather than hire full-time people. I, I've absolutely no doubt that the university wouldn't go near hiring a full-time person um, to assist the union with activities, especially when they're, you know, such a, a um, an anti-UCD management body at the minute at the union. Um, but I, I can definitely see um, uh, that a, a, such a role would have benefits. I just can't see the union afford it anytime soon or the university going near it. Okay, well, we've been running for a very long time. And so I think it is probably about time that we wrap up. So uh, first things first, big congratulations to everyone who succeeded in their prospective races. 
Um, we're all very much looking forward to seeing what they do uh, with the coming year. And commiserations to everyone who was successful in the races they contested. If anyone else has any kind of closing points they want to bring in at this stage, uh, I'd love to hear it. Um, yeah, I might, I might make a not, point. If not, I um, will cut that line and wrap up. <laughs> can, I, can I make a point, Heather? Yeah, go on, Connor. I just want to say that um, if anyone's listened this far in the podcast, congratulations. You're one of the very few people who really cares <laughs> about student politics. Most people don't. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to ever chat about student politics and you're this deep into it, just hit me up. I would just like to wrap up by saying I'm actually quite optimistic for this year's um, Slovak team. I am very confident with, uh, with Rory Power as president, and I think he's going to do good things. And I think he has a good team around him to work for students and do as best they can. Um, there's a long way to go for students to for, for student issues to be fixed. But I think if the team is doing the best they can, doing the most they can for students, that's pretty good at this stage. I'd also like as a final comment, just to say thank you so much to Heather for hosting this podcast week in, week out and the amazing contribution she's given. And I love the University Observer News podcast and she's done a fantastic job this year. Oh, thank you, dear. And there might be another, we don't know. Maybe not, I have so many deadlines. Um, but uh, I'd like to thank uh, Stephen, Connor and Dieran for joining me here today. And I, there may be another podcast episode before the year is out. I'm hopeful that uh, at the very least I will get an annual retrospective in after week 12. So it won't be the last time you're here for me, but it is our last one on the student election. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, you will hear from us again at some stage. Thank you and goodbye.